Well, thanks. Thanks for agreeing to have a chat with us. Um, That's all right. It's no it, worries it, at all. It's, a, I suppose, a slight departure in terms of subject matter for us because we haven't, I don't think we've actually talked about nutrition. No, not really. At Ooh. all. I get, Which, yeah. I get to be the first one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, we haven't really talked about it. I mean, we've, we've, we've explored a lot of ground in terms of just an active life, um, both in fitness and you know, strength and conditioning, but also going into people who just do it for fun, um, people who do parkour. Um, yeah, right. All sorts of stuff. So it's not just focused on um, one particular area um, within the, I don't know what you call it. Um, health and fitness arena. Yeah, health and yeah. fitness arena. I don't really like that term because I don't think people who aren't in health and fitness, even though they're active and that's what they do for a living, see themselves as in the health and fitness world so mm. i'm always a little bit wary about that because and again i suppose that's maybe something we can talk about is the perception of that world and particularly um i think for me it's even more maybe this again my perception maybe um it's it's even more highlighted in the on the nutrition world on the nu- nutrition side because i think m- even more than in health and fitness, in nutrition, people are looking for the magic pill or the thing that's going to fix all of the problems and work. Always, always. My DMs are ridiculous. I had one of my friends message me saying, like, what's the deal with NAD and do I need it? I'm like, what? For what reason? What are you taking it for? She's like, I don't know. Instagram's just marketing it to me. Like, yeah. You, you don't even know what it does and you're asking me whether you should be taking it or not. Like, why? It's insane. Isn't that just almost um, a little microcosm of everything that goes on? Is that people don't research? They just <clears throat> and they, they don't know where do. to. That's the problem. They don't know where to do the research or what's a good resource to trust because there's so much misinformation from people who aren't educated or from like rats to humans. It means the same thing. Like, people just misinterpret so much information online. It's so tricky. Yes. And that's, that is it. Where do you get your information from? How do you get your information? What's safe? What's not safe? Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> I'm a big, there's a website that I use all the time that I always tell people if you're going to Dr. Google stuff, um, examine.com is a really good place mm. to do it. And if you guys have ever used it, um, but it's all science backed research. So it basically, they summarize everything. Um, and they'll tell you when they've done an article, say you type in fish oil, it'll be say, it'll say like information's based on 837 scientific um, studies and they exclude anything that's um, like a bit questionable around funding and things like that, which is really cool. So they do, they're really, really good at supplementation and um, actually finding out like in layman's terms, what stuff does, what the dosage should be and so on. But other than that, there's not a lot of good resources online, which is tricky. I think I think that's that's part of the issue because evidence based um, sort of research studies and, and publications that that really do hold weight, the peer reviewed, that they're, they're not sponsored by a particular company. You know, they, they have they've gone through ethics panels, all that sort of stuff. That's great, but people can't be bothered to find them and read them. And yeah, that, that's that's my. And I don't know what the solution to this is because 
they're not that exciting unless that's your job. So if it's yeah. your job to I, understand... I'm not, I'm not excited by them and it's my job to understand. <laughs> like, I'm not... I don't sit and read studies and be like, wow, I'd love spending, like, the next hour trying to decipher this. Like, it's... Yeah. It's... Um, it is quite hard reading, particularly unless you're, like, a science researcher. Yeah. But if, if you find it difficult and it's your job to educate people on that side of things, then I think yeah. using those papers... And I'm not criticising the... Um, the point is to go to to that website um because i think it is a valid one but if you struggle i think the layman whose job it isn't just is going to use an instagram post <laughs> rather than yeah. rather than a yeah. um, a relatively long document and i think right and you've got to choose the people who you follow right and know that they're either you've got to trust that they're educated and also ask where they're getting this their information from like everything should be science-backed or like where have they got that research from and can we trust that research you just got to question everything and everybody it's like I think we're like in an area of like iCloud now where everybody just wants to like export their brains to somebody else and be like oh they know they'll sort it out like rather than actually going hang on a second what's my body telling me so I always say to people symptoms are just as important as diagnostics so if you go and get bloods and you're like oh everything's fine but I'm really stressed I'm not sleeping uh, and my hormones feel off I'm weepy I'm sad it's like well yeah your bloods might not be saying anything but if you're feeling symptomatic then we still need to tackle that so I think people are very quick to just kind of go oh well I need to get this tested or I need to take this supplement but without actually going hang on what's my body telling me how do I feel? How am I eating? What's my lifestyle like? Um, and we just kind of export it to everybody else and go, what should I be doing? I don't know. Yeah, I totally agree. And I said something in, um, in our last podcast in the round table. And I, it, I don't think it sort of came across how I, how I intended it. And I did intend it to come across as people just need to think a bit harder about things. And I think it was that sort of context that you just went through in terms of how people just need to look at everything that they're doing and that things they can feel and then use that to make judgments and just be a bit more aware of themselves, what they're doing, what your goal is, and then put in place some things to get yourself towards that. It might be overcoming a problem. It might be curing lack of sleep, curing bad skin, whatever the the problem is. Mm. But it might be to look good on the beach when you go on your holidays, which is fine as well. You know, kind of, I'm, not, I'm not judging anybody who, who um, go, goes for that particular thing. But you actually need to think quite hard and understand yourself and what you need to do to get to that and overcome that yeah. problem or reach that goal. So you do need to Agreed. do a little bit of introspection and a little bit of work to look at things a bit more holistically rather than seeking that single magic pill that doesn't actually exist yeah i think people like you say people almost want the blueprint right they want the blueprint of like if i follow these steps and if i live this way and i eat this way and i do these things i will be my optimal self but we know that that doesn't exist and so it what we actually really miss and certainly something that i spend a lot of time coaching clients on is actually what's going on in your body in response to food and lifestyle and 90% 90% of the time, they're not aware. It's really interesting. So say, for example, somebody comes to me with acne and I'll say, okay, so you're getting flares. When is it worse? And I'm like, um, 
don't know, it just pops up every, you know, every now and again, it just gets more, it, more like flared. I'm like, okay, so are you eating more dairy? Are you having more caffeine? How's your sleep when that happens? What's thing, anything going on in your, in your relationship, that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. I'll track it next time. It's so interesting that we don't make an association between symptoms and outcomes. Like mm. it's always just like, oh, this is happening to me and I don't know why. When you you haven't really taken into account like, oh, but I've actually been eating a lot, you know, I've had a lot of alcohol this week or something happened, you know, something different's happened. So it's, yeah, it's fascinating that we've really kind of stopped making that connection between like what we're doing to our bodies versus what the outcome is and just going, oh, it happens to me. Mm. Relationship, relationships with life and food and then how it affects us and the relationship of habit and what we reach for when we're stressed and we're tired and we usually get to a point where we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and going I don't like what I see because of a prolonged period of habitualism of overeating or eating the wrong things and people don't necessarily appreciate that the time it's taking to get to that point is going to be at least as long often to get you away from that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting as well that I think, like you were saying, it's really, we don't have the, um, the association from a holistic perspective, right, of, um, you know, these things other than food these things affect my mood or my lifestyle or the way that I feel it's very much um we don't have that connection anymore for some reason I don't know why that is I don't know if it's because we're bombarded with information or misinformation or um we don't understand how our bodies work um but we're so far removed from understanding you know outcomes based on the lifestyles that we follow and so a lot of my a lot of the times that I have clients I'll be like okay so your mood's slow but what are you doing every day that brings you joy like what are you doing for 10 minutes that that brings happiness in your day are you you know playing with your pets are you going for a coffee on your own are you looking at the sun are you um, you know spending time in nature and honestly like the amount of people that turn around to me and say I'm not doing anything for myself I don't have any time alone I don't I don't even have time to go to the gym I'm just looking after my kids or my husband or I'm cleaning the house and it's just functional like from start to finish there is nothing other than I wake up I go to work I pay the bills I sleep um and then we all wonder why mood's low or hormones are out of whack or Mm. you know why we're reaching for food um because serotonin's low and we reach for food because it's a quick fix in terms of neurotransmitters that make us feel calm and happy. And it's so it's everywhere accessible, you know, like we've always got some in the cupboard or in the office drawer or whatever. And it's just that quick fix of like, oh, well, it calms me or it soothes me or it brings me that dose of joy. But if you look outside at your life and go, hang on, what am I actually doing to bring that in, in elsewhere? The answer, like 90% of the time is, well, actually nothing. I'm not doing anything to get joy. So I see so much like a big reliance with people on using food as an emotional kind of prop because um, they're not really tackling emotion and relationships and things outside of food, which is really sad. It's a bit of an a bit of an epidemic I see in clinic, funnily enough. Yeah. I mean, I think we've, we've mentioned this 
previously, but I always go back to, or my mind always goes back to um, when we talk about these things and the, the, the body as a system or kind of our body mind as a system rather than just a, an individual part that can be fixed in isolation. Um, I always think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of people's yeah. basic needs in terms of food, sleep, exercise, safety. You know, those things are the things that you need. And then what, if, if, if you've got those basic needs, then you're starting to build the layers on top of that in order to, like you say, bring you some joy and happiness and some balance in yeah. your life to ultimately help yourself just navigate through life in the happiest way possible or in a way that keeps you content and fulfilled. And I think that's, yeah. that's the goal for me. Yeah, absolutely. And like this, the sense of connection that I, that I think people are missing as well, as you mentioned, like in the hierarchy of needs, I think like the, if I remember from school or whatever it was, it was like love and belonging as one of the, yeah. one of the kind of levels, um, like friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. But we've, yeah. we've decentralized that so much that like, again, speaking of the iCloud kind of analogy, um, everything's online now, isn't it? Like our, our connection with humans has um, really kind of split apart and we do it on social media now. Like rather than engaging with a person sat next to you, we'll sit on our phones at cafes and just scroll together yeah. as opposed to having a, a deep conversation with one another. Um, and interestingly, I was talking to somebody about this earlier, about the the blue zone diet or the blue zones around the world and those, you know, those pockets of the population that have got the longest living people or the healthiest people at an older age. Um, and some of the diet, there is a common denominator, you know, they have a lot of oily fish and whatnot and a lot of fresh air and they walk plenty. But one of the other things that crops up really commonly um, in those blue zones is the sense of connection. So when they eat, they eat to get together and it's a family occasion and they spend a lot of time with one another um, as a village almost, connecting person to person, which we seem to have lost the art of, I think, yeah. now, just with, you know, the internet and emails and whatever. Like, when was the last time you picked up a phone and had a conversation with a colleague when you could just drop them an email or a text? Like, it just, it just doesn't happen. It's inconvenient. Um, and I think that sense of connection steers us away, right, from having a fulfilled life and then we turn back to food to fix the problem that's really interesting so i have to say i'm one of those people that prefers a phone call or if i'm at work i'd rather go and speak to a person as opposed to email them because there's no nuance in an email or a text message it's just it's just words and the person receiving it can interpret it in a hundred thousand different ways that are probably not the way you want it to be received so I'd rather just have that conversation or um, yeah, face to face with them. I think you're still you're a rare breed now, Paul. Yeah, just old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't think about it. But I mean, like it's very rare that people are like, yeah, I'd I'd like to have a conversation face to face because how much it it might take an extra what five or ten minutes on instead of an email. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's so much richer, especially if you're sharing information in the workspace it's never just one thing you know you have a conversation and offshoots will come from that and you'll pass more information during a conversation than you will generally do so typing a message 
and it just becomes a much richer and deeper experience. And I think I think there is that lack of probably connection these days or, or yeah. reduction in it. And, and maybe that helps with food. I don't know because. I think it's a choice as well. I mean, you, you, you're in control of making your own choices and you can choose to do a face-to-face conversation or not. And yeah. that's up to you and the consequences of doing one or the other, the pros and cons of both. One's really quick, but you won't get the richness and may not get, um, like Paul said, the nuance. But it's your decision to do that. You can choose not to do the quick you know, kind of less meaningful way of doing things and then face the consequences of that because it means you've lost connection. It's kind of on you, isn't it? If you're aware of it, it's on you. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. If you're aware of it, right? And, like, I think that's something that we don't actually appreciate. Again, because we're not that in tune with our bodies and we're looking externally for answers all the time, that you don't actually realise, like, oh, hang on, well, my mental health, isn't so great now I don't have the social connection I used to have like I don't think we've actually made that connection in our minds of like Mm. oh there's a correlation here and so we just continue on and go oh hang on but my health's getting worse and my and therefore my relationship on food is a bit you know not that healthy and um and and then it all kind of just gets out of whack and then I have people coming to me in clinic going you know well what am I doing wrong I don't get it I'm like I know that I should be eating healthy but I'm not doing or I know I should be drinking three liters of water. I know I shouldn't be having this much alcohol. There's there's a real disconnect between people's knowledge and action from a behavioral point of view. So it's like they know what to do. Nobody needs to pay me $200 to say drink more water and eat more vegetables, which is what everybody needs to do, right? Like, But realistically, they come to me saying, well, what am I doing? Why, can't, why can I not do the things that I know I need to do? Like what's stopping me? What are the barriers? That kind of thing. Um, and quite often it is all these things. It's the lack of social connection and all that kind of stuff that is actually like I'm putting food too high on a pedestal when really there's a lot of other things in my life that require attention that could make it rich and lovely. But I'm not giving them attention because everything's so disconnected now. Yeah. yeah. It's probably a good point to just say, Sally, what is it you do? What is your background? Yeah. Because <laughs> we're kind of 20 minutes in and people are like, who is this woman? Who's this woman? Is. Yeah. This is talking sense. <laughs> yeah for sure I'll give you I'll try and give you a brief overview so I don't bore everybody but basically uh, originally from the UK live in Australia now have done for the last 11 years I'm a clinical nutritionist um holistic in that sense I started out um working for the NHS in the UK so I worked in obesity prevention um with one of what used to be a PCT um then I went traveling landed in Australia Um, and I had a terrible diet. I must admit I had a terrible diet. I didn't know how to cook anything. I was 24 when I landed in Australia and was like, right, don't know how to boil an egg, really need to know how to not poison myself with raw chicken. Um, and so I got on, got on a call to my mom and was like, Hey, like they don't have the Jamie Oliver microwave meals here. What am (laughs) I going to do? Um, and she sent me a load of recipes that were all like super basic, but really English, like just 
like jam and cream and butter and everything. And so I started cutting a few bits out of her recipes and just making them a bit healthier, also just to save cash. Um, And then I actually lost a lot of weight without even trying. And I was like, oh my God, this healthy eating thing is actually quite good. Um, And yes, cut out processed foods. And actually, I think I lost about 14 kilos in the space of about 10 months which was a lot. I mean, I was, I didn't feel massively overweight, but I obviously didn't need the extra kilos that I had on me. So um, I then started a website sharing the like healthier recipes back to my mom. I didn't actually realize at that time that it was on a public domain. Somebody else set it up for me. And so it en- ended up kind of taking off. My Instagram took off. So I was sharing those recipes on Instagram as well. Um, and then a publisher found me and said, hey, we love all your recipes. Let's do a book. Um, I then said, look, Hey, I really want, I'm a bit of a control freak. I want creative control. Can I learn to do the photography and the styling for it? Just give me three or four weeks and I'll get on with it. So I, I went on the school of YouTube and learned food photography, um, did my first book on the floor of a one bedroom apartment in Sydney. And then that actually went really well. I then became a food photographer and stylist off the back of that. So I then started, actually, funnily enough, worked for Jamie Oliver doing his restaurants in, like, shooting his restaurants in Sydney. Uh, And then a lot of other companies here, so all the big supermarkets and stuff. So that turned into kind of a full-time career for me. Um, In the meantime, because the book took off, I then did a second book, and I was worried that I didn't have a qualification in health. I was like, I can't really be talking Mm. about health and the benefits of eating well if I'm not educated. And I was frustrated as well by the such misinformation like the amount of information of like shall I eat coconut oil shall I not have coconut oil like what does it do to my insides is it a saturated fat is it going to make me thin I don't understand any like it was just so overwhelming even though I had all good intentions of like I just want to do what's best for my body I couldn't work out where to turn so like you know what this is ridiculous I'm an educated woman I need to do a degree so I went and did a clinical nutrition degree and ended up where I am now, did my second cookbook. Um, and I'm in the middle now of trying to solve my own pain point of me like 10 years ago of where the hell do I turn for solid nutrition information that's um, that's easily digestible to the normal person. So I'm starting a nutrition education app which will be really fun. So it's all like, it's all going to be like mini bite-sized videos about weight loss and health and optimizing yourself with the right supplements and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just trying to make it really um, easy and simple to digest for the average person that's science-backed, evidence-based nutrition, solid nutrition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's a ma- as we've discussed earlier, there's a massive gap <laughs> for that sort of thing because it, it doesn't really yeah. exist. Um yeah, that, that that middle ground, that sensible place, which is right. uh, always it's just good... teaching balance. It's yeah. teaching balance again for people, which is really sad because it's not sexy. And I keep being like, keep saying to my branding designer, I'm like, I don't know how we're going to sell this as like thing for people to sign up to because I'm literally teaching balance of yeah, you can have chocolate, yes, you can have a glass of wine. Can we do it in moderation though? Yeah. And then eighty percent of the time, eat whole foods. Um, but then, you you know, we were all battling massive conglomerates who are marketing to us, who have found the sweet spot on all these foods that are hyper palatable. And we're having to say no to those and yes to fresh fruits and veggies, which is a is a task in itself. So um, it's yeah. it's tricky and it's not exciting to sell to people, but it hopefully 
the right people get hold of what I'm trying to do and um, and use it for good. Yeah. Is it fair to say that actually the odds are stacked against the average person when it comes to eating nutritionally? Maybe I'm being overly kind, but. The, the level of marketing that goes on, the um, accessibility of food that is instant, so you don't have to know how to cook. It's already done for you. So certainly maybe my parents' generation and certainly their parents' generation they had to know how to make a meal out of scraps. And it was fresh stuff. Often that they would grow their own because the supermarket wasn't open 24 hours, seven days a week. In the UK, it was open five days and probably a half a day on a Wednesday. And if you ran out of something, you were run out until the following following day. So you could make a meal out of pretty much anything that was in the fridge and you learned to cook with fresh foods and seasonal foods. Whereas nowadays, everything is so accessible and most people probably don't know how to cook a meal. Maybe I'm being unkind, but I think there is a lost art of being able to cook a meal. Yeah, and, and let's be honest, like, even I, like, you know, nutritionists write cookbooks, write recipes for people all day, every day. Even I find it a struggle to be like, you know what, I'm going to spend an hour roasting a chicken. Like, I, I just don't see the value in it. It sounds terrible. And um, I think cooking, you have to really love to want to do it in this day and age because there is such accessible stuff out there where it's like I can go and buy a roast chicken at the supermarket and it's essentially the same kind of thing. The problem is we don't know how to read food labels very well. And so what I would do is go into a supermarket and be like, right, what are my options and what's the healthiest choice here? Whereas the average person might just grab whatever's cheapest or whatever's comes to hand first. And so we don't know all these things that are going into foods, you know, like the thickeners and the stabilizers and the preservatives and what that does to the body. And over time, you know, that's stuff that our grandparents never ate. They, they wouldn't, you know, have grown any of that or had any of that in the diet. And so we've gone through this like industrialization to make everything accessible and long shelf life and all that jazz. But unless you know how to avoid those things and what products to go for, we've still got that problem of, yes, it, you know, there's lots of convenient things that look the same as home cooked food, but they're actually not. And so even when you're trying to be healthy, it's like, I'll just grab, you know, the, the simplest thing that solves my problem. It's often got a lot of fillers and additives and God knows what in there that over time impact your gut microbiome and which we know is like the kind of the root cause of many things. So skin breakouts, hormone imbalances, um, depression, all that kind of stuff that we're seeing a lot more of now. Yeah, it's that it's that sort of gut gut brain connection, isn't it? Yeah, the axis. Yeah, which is really interesting because again, the the kind of prevalence of people that come through clinic and they're like, right, so because I have like a little tick list of these are all the symptoms that I've got at the moment. The amount of people, it's like small intestine, everything's ticked, large intestine, everything's ticked, GIT, everything, and it's just like bloating, gas, diarrhea, constipation, um, you know, stomach pain, um, reflux, um, headaches, flaky skin, and it just it goes on and on and on and on and on, and it's just this long list of things that people are battling every day. It's like, but what what's your diet like? And 70% of the time it's processed foods a lot of a lot of processed foods and it can look fairly what you might consider healthy so it might be you know like a protein yogurt that's got you know lots of stevia and gums and thickness in and then it's a sugar-free granola 
um, but it's got canola oil on it and, you know, plant, you know, seed oils and things. And then, you know, so there's smashing the dairy and the smashing the gluten. And then you go into lunch and they've had, you know, a takeout from a cafe and it's packaged and it's got extra sugar in. And then they have a muffin and a coffee and, and it just goes on and on. And it's like all these foods that have been pre-prepared, they've got all this extra stuff in is going into our body. We're just pumping it into our bodies daily. And so, you're right that the, the amount of food that we eat that's home cooked or that's home prepared is so minimal now because we've got so much to do that we, we feel is more important other than cooking and preparing food. So it's like, let's just go for the convenience. But then we're getting all these symptoms off the back of that. And it also yeah. takes out that social aspect that we were talking about, the connection. Because when you cook, you cook, or you cook as a family, you're two of you are in the kitchen chatting and cooking that's quite an enriched conversation again are you talking about your day you're offloading all oh, these are the highlights and what have you and then it kind of almost sets you up for the evening if that makes sense because you've almost offloaded the day because i'll come home from work and my head is hundreds of things banging around my from my head so i work as a a nurse practitioner so I'm seeing patients all day so there's lots of things that bang around and it just helps to settle that out so I'm not thinking about it going into the evening which then probably means I sleep better but yeah I think people miss yeah it's that, that transition that isn't it from from work mode to family mode you have to put a different hat on and be like hang on a second <laughs> I'm yeah, talking time. to the kids or I'm with my wife or whatever and like I need to just switch off like the yeah the alpha boss kind of energy that you come at from work um but yeah you're absolutely right like it and there's so much blurred line there's so many blurred lines now isn't it with a lot of us working from home and people have continued that on and then it's just like you know I can work till eight nine o'clock the amount and again the amount of people who are now working like much longer hours and therefore are not cooking Mm. um and, and just buying convenience food and not knowing how to read a food label or understand the difference between um, food marketing tactics. So just reading the front and saying, oh, it's high protein, and then assuming that it's healthy. That I think that that's the disconnect that we have with food. It's like it's convenient and it's got good protein, I'm sold. And so, we don't actually look at the ingredients. Yeah, and there is, there's a lot of, um, I would say, borderline misleading um, on a lot of things, particularly now, everybody just sticks the word protein on on the packet <laughs> because it has some protein in, often less protein than the non-protein branded version of the same thing. As um, kind of, there's some really good people, um, kind of who who show these things, um, such as yourself and, and other people. I think is it is it Graham? Is it Graham Tomlinson? The fitness chef. Yeah, yeah so I love him. He's probably one of the sort of kind of earliest adopters of of. Uh, debunking these myths particularly around calories um kind of i suppose kind of quite focused on calories but also debunking and letting people know that they are being misled to a certain extent um and i do think there needs to be a lot more regulation of those sort of things obviously not a, not something that we can uh, we can solve here but i think regulation yeah. of those things and making it easier for people to understand when they're being marketed to or when they're actually just being given correct information um, and yeah, I actually have a absolutely. personal rule, which is, and you mentioned gums um, as, a, as a filler product. If it's got xanthan gum in it, I'll avoid it because it probably right. has lots of other things in it as well. And that's kind of a rule that I adopted a, a while ago as a way of just searching for 
that particular product and then go, no, maybe that's not the thing that I'm going to buy. Yeah, it's so interesting. So <clears throat> on that topic, because yeah, xanthan gum is a good one to look out for. It's used as a thickener in so many products. So yeah. you can even just buy it in the baking section, right, to add to like gluten-free bread or whatever. Um, another really good one to look out for is anything ending. So all the words probably don't make a lot of sense to the majority of people on the back of packets, but anything that ends in O-L is an alcohol, which is yeah. why alcohol is spelled the way that it is, yeah? So um, sugar alcohols end in O-L, like malitol, sorbitol, etc. Um, xylitol is also one that pops up a lot anything that ends in ol generally it'll say on the packet excessive consumption will have a laxative effect because our bodies don't actually know how to digest them properly the, the chemical makeup of them is not digestible by the human body but yet we put them in food um and so when anything that says if you're going to eat a lot of this you're going to have an upset stomach is kind of questionable to me but yet that's our food chain um, so I always look out for those things because to me that's kind of like oh do I really want to be eating something that in high doses is going to make me unwell and my my digestive system will tell me that probably not like it's not something I even want to give myself low dose of all the time so yeah there's a couple of like I think one of the best things everybody can do for the health is really understand how to read a nutrition label yeah. um, and even just basic things like knowing that the first thing that's listed is the thing that's in the highest amount in the product so silly things like that um, knowing you know to look for sugar alcohols what the names of the thickness are and then even just looking at like per serve in 100 grams what's considered good protein what carbs am I getting what fats am I getting and is it a reasonable serve to say that it's 100 grams or am I going to want to eat 400 grams, right? Because that's another misleading marketing thing. It's like, oh, one yeah. serve, but it's, you know, three Smarties. You're like, no one's going to eat three. <laughs> We've got a tube here. So um, being realistic about portion sizes as well, as Graham Tomlinson talks about, like, calories are calories, right? They're either nutritious or they're not nutritious. Nothing's going to make you super ill. Nothing's going to make you thin by eating it. It's just whether you, what balance of the nutritious versus non-nutritious foods that you get in your diet. I always say 80% of the time, pick the nutritious option. And then 20% of the time, allow yourself some treat foods, right? Like the donuts and whatever, but account for all of those things in your caloric intake. Generally speaking, that's a great rule to get you by, you know? Absolutely. Are there big red flags you look for on the back of labels? Um, any well, more just the marketing tactics, right? Which I think is a bit is a bit of a tricky thing to navigate. So, um, and the supplements industry is a whole other ball game <laughs> that we can have a quick chat about. But in yeah, terms definitely. of how it's marketed, um, it's things that I would probably look out for. As I was saying, the sugar alcohols and. Um, I'm not a big fan of seed oils, so um, like canola, sunflower, um, that kind of stuff, rapeseed oils, things like that I try and avoid. Um, and then generally I'll just look for, you know, usual stuff like would my grandma have had this in a cupboard? And if I don't recognize the words, yeah. do I want to be eating lots of it or not? Probably not. So it's just dose dependent, you know, like the dose makes the poison, as they say. Is it my grandma's cupboard that's a really good good way of looking at it someone once said to me oh you should eat food that either has roots or a parent <clears throat> yeah as opposed to anything that's been processed <laughs> i mean it's kind of brutal way of looking at it but okay it makes sense but i like that um if it was it my grandma's cupboard that works now yep. maybe in 50 years that doesn't work 
Right. Yeah. And, but that's why I say like, you need that balance because otherwise yeah. you drive yourself insane and then you get stressed about eating the wrong things. Right. And there, there is no wrong thing. It's just calories. It's just food. Mm. Um, and food is fuel. Calories are fuel. But you, it, the problem is if you eat a lot of the non-nutritious options, so the more processed ones. So say I have a protein bar instead of a chicken breast, for example, I might be getting the same macronutrients, but one's got vitamins and minerals in and one's pretty devoid of vitamins and minerals, right? So that's when supplements come into play and people are like, oh, you know, I'm lethargic. I've got brain fog. I've got this. I've got that. And it's like, but, you know, are you eating foods that contain vitamins and minerals? Well, mm, questionable. So then we turn to supplements to try and fill the gaps. You could have your daily amount of calories, but you could be uh, malnourished. Because Absolutely. you're not having the minerals and vitamins that you need for your body to maintain homeostasis, let alone absorb any stresses, anxieties that you're either putting it through physically or emotionally or mentally. Yeah. Overfed and undernourished, I think, is like the, the common term we use, yeah. right? Of just not not getting the, the fiber, the vitamins, the minerals that we need to thrive and just saying, oh, well, you know, I'm putting on weight and I'm stressed and this, that and the other. It's like, but yeah. we're not looking at, you know, where that beautiful food's coming from. And the processed stuff is displacing the whole foods. That's the problem. So yeah. it's like, well, you know, do the convenient stuff, but you can't do it 60% of the time in exchange for the other stuff and expect to feel good. Mm. And I suppose at the moment, the, the other marketing, I'm going to call it marketing, sort of, I suppose going down a slightly controversial route on this one, but um, vegan, vegan stuff. Um, the processed Damn. side of the vegan food market is yeah the dark side of nutrition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you only have to have a look at, and I'm you know anyone can make their own nutrition choices. That's fine if if you want to be vegetarian, vegan. That's that's absolutely fine. But don't tell me that a processed vegan meal is healthier than some meat and vegetables, right? Yeah, and it all depends. Again, it all depends, right? If you say, you know, less human intervention with food is better, I always come across like that's always a really good rule. So the, the fewer hands that have been kind of playing around with the food and machinery, the better. So like I eat meat. I also write cookbooks. I, I ghostwrite for people who are like strong advocates of um vegan the vegan athletes and whatnot. And like, I think I, I definitely eat plant-based meals, but the volume of food that you have to eat as a vegan to get the equivalent amount of protein is something that people need to consider. And the fact that, you know, they're missing out on things like B12 and whatnot that we can only generally get from meat sources, that needs to be taken into consideration as well. So there's definitely um, an element of the veganism diet that requires some support nutritionally from supplements. Um, and you just have to know that going into it. If it's an ethical, if it's an ethical thing, I totally like, appreciate that. If it's for health purposes and you turn to, as you were saying, like the processed plant-based versions that are burgers and, you know, chicken nuggets, fake chicken nuggets and stuff, what are you really swapping for? Like you're taking, instead of having chicken breast, you're now having a thing that looks and kind of tastes like chicken, but isn't. It's man-made what? Yeah. I, I, I really struggle with vegan bacon. I mean, if, if you're against bacon because of the way it's produced, why do you want a vegan version of it? Surely that just goes 
uh, I, maybe I'm being completely naive, but it doesn't compute for me. Just give me a nice lot of vegetables that have been really nicely roasted with some seasoning on it. Yeah. And if I need to then have some some B12 or some other protein as as a as a supplement, fine, I'll go down that. But don't don't give me a fake burger or a, a, a fake chicken breast. I, that, that, I have to say I find that really conflicted with that. I don't get it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess a lot of people have turned to veganism to have a better quality diet, right? They think they're going to get a lot more vitamins and minerals because they're having lots of plant-based foods. But again, it's like human intervention exists, whether it's in a vegan diet or if it's in a carnivore diet. Like, And same with meats. You can get good quality meat. You can get you know, poor quality meat, processed, you know, pressed burgers that have got the scrapings of a butcher's floor on versus like a grass-fed 100% beautiful beef burger from your butchers so it's like you know you've got to make your choices whatever category you're in to try and pick the best <coughs> like bearing in mind there there are some like very well marketed products out there that we try and have to like try and navigate yeah. um but you've got to try and make the best choice in the category that you're sat and and just you know eat as well as you can I was, like i was saying that 80 percent of the time and then give yourself a break for 20 percent of it Sorry, Sean, I was going to ask because I think cost comes into it as well when trying to choose healthy options, whether that's vegan or normal omnivore diet. Yeah. Absolutely. <clears throat> it's just, very expensive, isn't it? If you're going to say like grass-fed meats versus three-star mints in the supermarket, that's that's another thing to consider, isn't it? Because like people um, don't necessarily want to spend a significant amount of money on food, which is 100% understandable. But then on the flip side of that, when you get to 50 and 60 and you've got a buildup of plaque in your arteries, it's like, do you want to pay for your poor health off the back of a cheap diet? Um, you're going to pay for it in some way, right? Whether you're paying for it through you know, expensive food and going to, you know, expensive gyms or, off the, you know, at the other end of the scale when you're a bit older, suffering from a poor quality of life because of the way that you've lived. So it kind of evens out and you've got to make your choice. But it's very tricky for people, I think, when you're looking at, you know, really premium cuts of meat versus, um, you know, the cheaper stuff that's available to us, thinking it's all the same and, you know, meat is meat, protein is protein. Yeah, but there's a balance there as well, you know, be between those things. I think find you know finding that middle ground or finding the area that works for you, because I'll be honest, I've got oh, this everywhere now. There's a really good um, trendy butchers. <laughs> How you get the trendy ones rather than the old fashioned traditional ones? Um, <laughs> just around the corner, um, it's, the meat is obviously it, it's great. You know, it, it's fantastic. But it's, the prices are like ridiculous. It's the type of thing that you might go to once a year if you're having a big barbecue for someone's birthday and you're having lots of people around and you get like a nice, nice load of meat. But on a day to day basis, um, and I'll be honest, I don't eat a huge amount of meat other than chicken, um, and that's mainly mainly for protein rather than for um, any particular love of chicken. Um, I much prefer fish and eat far more fish than I do meat, um, salmon, sea bass, cod, that sort of that sort of thing, um, and, and that would be mostly my animal product. But the type of chicken I get isn't the worst chicken, but it isn't the best chicken. 
it's the chicken in the middle and it seems to work. And I think going back to what we discussed earlier about being just a bit more self-aware and aware of what works for you is important. And if you're thinking, actually, I'm starting to put on a bit of weight or I'm not seeing, um, I'm not seeing any results of the training I'm doing. One is you're eating the wrong things or eating too much. And the other one is maybe you need to eat a bit more and include a bit more protein and just monitor that on a, it's time scale that actually works as well. Rather than just say, yeah, I did a workout yesterday. Why aren't I big? Or yeah, I, I know we're not good at less, consistency. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> yeah, I ate less food. I had a salad yesterday. Why am I, why have I put on a kilo, you know, in a day? Yeah. It's like, cause that's how it is. Yeah. It's just, it, again, I think, I think the education goes beyond the, this is what you should eat. It's that more holistic approach of what it actually means as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And it, it's interesting you say like, you know, that, that butchers that's around the corner from you, the prices are, you know, exorbitant, but exorbitant comparative to what? Yeah, to, to the cheap supermarket food that we've been market, you know, we've had said that, you know, this, this meat is available. Or when you go and ask the farmer who is giving their animals organic feed and looking after them and giving them plenty of space to move, I guarantee he's not going to say that that's expensive. He's no. saying that's the cost that it's, t- it's, it's taking me to rear animals in the best way. So our perception of what is cheap or what is accessible is warped by the fact that there's such crap food in the supermarket and we base it on you know oh well i can go and spend three times as much at the butchers or i can go and get the the rubbish stuff from the supermarket and therefore that's the better option right or it's it's the more feasible option but it's because when we've got all this rubbish food in the supermarkets and in our food chain that we think that's expensive so it's finding as you were saying it's finding that balance right of like what can i actually afford and if i'm going to have meat maybe i can have good quality meat but have it less often so like go and get your organic chicken, but maybe only do that twice a week or once a week and buy it in bulk and freeze it and do whatever you can. Um, just making savvier choices where you can rather than, you know, eating chicken, you know, two, three, four, five, six times a week and it being poor quality and then loading up on, you know, cheap steak and cheap this, that and the other for the rest of the time. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's one of those things that you've, you've just got to find the right balance for you, as you were saying, and like the budget that you've got. But as often as possible, buying good quality stuff, because otherwise you pay for it, like you were saying. If you think about the meat, the, the hormones and stuff that are pumped into meats to make them cheap, and that we're ingesting those and then saying, oh, well, my hormones, you know, my estrogen, the amount of women that say, oh, I'm estrogen dominant. Right, right. Well, what's in your diet? Are you eating out of plastic containers that have got BPA? Like, are you reheating things? Are you drinking out of water bottles twice? Um, all that kind of stuff. It's like you're getting all this stuff in that messes with your hormones through your diet, but you're wondering why, um, you know, you're holding more fat around your stomach or whatever. So it's, there's, as I was coming back full circle, there's a real big disconnect with understanding what we're taking in and what it does to our bodies. Um, and actually going, hang on, all these symptoms are cropping up, and I don't know why. We don't make the link, which is really interesting. It is, and I think it's really hard to, to if we take those meats for an example, certainly our farmed meats, and we can talk about fish in a separate way perhaps, but it's how do you find out what is put into the feed? Because I, I don't know that I could tell you, unless you're just going for grass-fed 
food, in which case I know it's having grass, but is it having any additional feeds? It's really, I, I would consider myself a reasonably educated person, but actually that's quite difficult to sift through all that when you're rushing in to get food with your two children running behind you or having your children in a busy life, taking yeah. that time. And I think people don't appreciate there is that cost now versus cost later. There's a big cognitive dissonance, isn't there, about, well, this will well, be fine. I'll be fine down the line until you're mm. not fine. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know. So for me... For me, I always look for so this middle ground idea, right? Of like maybe not we're not going organic, but maybe we're not also doing the three star meat. I always look for stuff that's kind of middle ground that always just says hormone free because I know they're not pumping them, they're not pumping the feed and they're not pumping the animals with hormones. Does it say that? Which is always a nice. It does in Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in Australia, it'll say hormone free meat. Um, and that's like a big advertising thing that we find on a lot of stuff here. I don't know if it's the same in the UK. I've never seen that labelled on anything. I'm going to have a look. Interesting. Yeah, and yeah go I and do, have a look. Tell me, yeah. And I actually do, if things that aren't kind of fruit and vegetables, um, I, I'm a real kind of label reader. Um, I do read the labels. And if it, if it said it was hormone-free, I would have noticed. And I imagine because of the way things are marketed, they would make that quite big because yeah. it would be well, something... We even do it on milk here. But it's even on oh. our milk here because I think there must have been, I don't know if there was like some sort of episode of people or I don't know, something on the TV or the news or whatever about, you know, you're getting all these hormones in your food. But it seems to be on all the labelling from like most animal products now here in Oz, which is very beneficial for us guys. But um sounds like it might not have hit your shores yet. No, I don't think it has. Which is so it's tricky. It's, it is really, really tricky because it's not something, again, it, that's not going to be something that's on an ingredients label, right? You don't know what the animals have been eating. So generally speaking, it's one of those things that, like, can you go to your butchers and, and if you're only going to eat, you know, red meat or whatever a couple of times a week, is that something where you can go to your butchers, buy, like, a kilo of mince, free, portion it up, stick it in your freezer, know that it's come from a fairly decent source because your butcher's going to know. You can say to your butcher what's a good, you know, in terms of the things that you've got here, do you know which farm it's come from? Are they farming organic or is, you know, what's the feed like or whatever? A lot of the time the butchers will be able to answer that for you. And if they don't go to a different butchers. Yeah. So how's the... Because we, we touched on gut microbiome a little bit earlier. Why don't we come back into that? You know, what does the hormones do to that? Why should people care what's happening to their gut microbiome and what is a gut microbiome for those people that don't know? Yeah, so your microbiome is just like the home of basically all the gut bacteria. And it's it's formed, obviously, very, very early age. So if you're um, born by cesarean, you, um, you don't have the same microbiome as someone who's born via natural birth. If you're um, fed by bottle as opposed to breastfed, you'll have a, di a slightly different makeup again of a different microbiome. Your microbiome is kind of the house of all your immunity. Um, and we're seeing a lot more that people are getting allergies and um, rashes and um, a lot of asthma and things like that. And a lot of that is to do with a lack of diversity in the microbiome. So having less um, variety of the bacteria that keeps us healthy in the gut. 
that also comes down to knowing that food feeds your microbiome. So it feeds all the good and the bad bacteria that we need in balance, as always, to keep us in homeostasis. The different foods that we eat feed different bacteria. So you think about two different people living in your stomach and one loves chicken and one loves steak, for example, they feed slightly differently. So the more variety we can get in our diets, the better the microbiome. So um, that's, again, something that we're, we seem to really struggle with nowadays is variety of diet or eating seasonally, which is a lovely thing to do. But, you know, foods are now permanently seasonal because we ship them in from everywhere. Um, so we're just like, we normally have about 15 or 16 foods on rotation. If you actually counted, like, I eat broccoli, I eat chicken, I eat fish, I sometimes have chocolate, I have this, that, and the other. If you actually list all the stuff you eat, it's about 15 to 16 main foods. And we don't really veer outside of that. We've just got preferences that we stick to. So it's really interesting when, when we kind of do that, we follow that diet for a long period of time, your microbiome diversity kind of dies off a little bit. And it just means that we're getting, um, we've got less immunity. So colds, flu season, all that kind of stuff comes around. We're not faring so well. Um, it also means that it has, so it has a big impact on, um, on mental health. So when we think about, as you, um, as you mentioned, Sean, the gut brain axis so there's been a lot of um kind of research over the last 10 years into that so the the gut itself um or the microbiome produces a lot of the neurotransmitters so GABA and dopamine which you'll be familiar with and serotonin so serotonin they say about 80 percent of that is produced in the gut and that's the happy calm kind of neurochemical um often that we see in people who have who overeat or have a poor relationship with food the serotonin is depleted it's a really common kind of denominator um and so often those people who aren't getting joy coming back full circle and like doing lots of nourishing things from a social perspective and things will turn to food because it does work to increase serotonin but it works for about five minutes and then we fall back into oh actually I feel shit again and you eat some more right so we turn into the cycle so the microbiome is so so important for many many functions in the body and as you were saying like with the gums and things like that that can also deplete the microbiome and the intestinal lining so then we get commonly termed um the um leaky gut syndrome or like intestinal permeability as it's more scientifically known where we get toxins kind of floating through the git so your gastrointestinal tract into your bloodstream and then we get these rashes and allergies and um overreactions to foods and things like that that's becoming a lot more common because we're not supporting the microbiome properly so what's your view in terms of and this is something i've looked in quite recently uh, into quite recently in terms of um foods that are classified on the, the FODMAP rating, so the sort of fermentable um, foods. So my understanding is that it's tied into what you've just been talking about in terms of the way in which the foods are processed in the gut. Is that right? Yeah, so so FODMAPs is essentially um, foods that are a lot of foods that are difficult to digest or we're seeing more and more of it right because we're seeing a lot of people who are having reactions to what we consider fairly healthy whole foods yeah. so onions garlic are like the main triggers in FODMAPs yeah. um and then 
Monash University actually here in Australia created an app that I think a lot of people might be familiar with who are FODMAP intolerant um, that basically is like a, a traffic light system of foods that you can digest and that you can't digest. And so what you're supposed to do is if you are kind of FODMAP intolerant or you're not able to digest these things, you get lots of bloating and loose stools and things after those particular foods, um, then you are supposed to follow this fairly rigid strict diet of eliminating all those foods and allowing the gut microbiome and the intestinal lining to heal so that by restricting these foods and you're meant to do it for a limited amount of time so it's not a diet that you're supposed to follow forever by any stretch of the imagination you're meant to do it for like eight weeks as an elimination and then you slowly introduce those foods back in in theory when your body's kind of healed and had a bit of time to recoup so in terms of a dietary approach, it's very effective. It's also very restrictive. So it's very difficult for people to say, I'm not going to have any onion or garlic or or like lots of things like avocado and stuff. And it's dose dependent. So it's like if you have half an avocado, you're not going to fare so well. But if you have a quarter, you might be all right. So it's just a lot for people to deal with in terms of um, restriction and stuff. And that's that's pretty difficult. But as from a clinical perspective, it's very effective. Yeah, the reason I mentioned it is because my wife's um, sort of suffered from sort of bloating and flare-ups, um, and we experimented a little bit and had had that chart um, on on the fridge for a bit. And we did we cut out garlic, onions, broccoli, um, which was another one, which is actually a shame because um, we actually grow in the summer. Particularly, we grow a lot of our own food, um, a lot of broccoli, onions, garlic. Um, which we're not doing this year. So we haven't actually put any of those in this year. Um, and it actually really helped. It actually kind of awesome. settled things down a bit. And yeah. I was interested on your view of whether it's a valid thing or whether it was just a coincidence, <laughs> maybe psychological, um, which a lot of things often are. Yeah. Um, but it, it sounds as if it is a tool shall we say rather than yeah it is it is a helpful tool for sure but it's definitely not a long-term approach so if you said to me we're going to cut broccoli out for the rest of our days that'd make me sad because there's such good vitamins minerals fiber um nutrients in broccoli yeah. but it's it might be dose dependent for her it might be something that you can start to reintroduce but also remember that anything that's um, what i would term cruciferous veg right so anything that's essentially got sulfur in so if you cook it for too long it's the stuff that smells like cabbage and um brussels sprouts and that kind of stuff so anything that fits in the cruciferous veg family really really beautiful um contents of sulfur which is detoxifying for the body so it helps get toxins out of the body love it for that but it also is a big promoter of gas and bloating so dose dependent if you have a lot of it you get like if i ate a half a head of cabbage i'm gonna have an upset stomach or i'm gonna experience bloating so it's just you've got it like dose dependent know what your body can handle and and start introducing it slowly and and making the link right between symptoms and food because yeah. we don't do that. It's like, I've got bloating, I've got diarrhea, I've got this, that, and the other. What are you eating? Oh, I don't know. I don't know when, why it happens or when it happens. Well, keep a food diary if that's, if that's a really simple thing that you can do. You know, like take note for a week of when I have these symptoms, what have I eaten in the, you know, four hours before or six hours before or what did you eat the day before? Um, and is there a common denominator in that? Like, is it dairy? Is it um, cruciferous veg is it whatever and and can you play around with okay well I'm not going to eat that for a week and see if my symptoms disappear you know 
So um, on that note, though, there are a lot of beautiful things you can do to support digestion in your microbiome. So one thing that gives me the shit, excuse my French, is that people always take a probiotic that's just like a generic one off the shelf. Yeah. Ooh, it makes me it makes me cringe because, you know, I was saying earlier, the balance between good and bad bacteria is really important. You can have too much good bacteria. Yeah. And you can have, say that somebody's got a good level of lactobacilli and then they go and eat a load of, um, I don't know, like they have a load of kefir, for example, that's got loads of lactobacilli in. I'm like, oh, well, after I've had that, I've got a really upset stomach. So, you know, maybe I can't eat that or whatever. And then the popping probiotics as well, that's got loads of lactobacilli mm. in. You, you've got too much of one bacteria, whether it's good or bad, it's too much of it. And it offsets the balance and therefore you're going to get a digestive response. So throwing yourself a random probiotic is not a helpful way to solve digestive issues. Um, and I think that's something, again, marketing is responsible for. Like, oh, I'll just take a probiotic and you got to be great. It's like, but, but what are you taking it for? What strains are you low in? Unless you do testing, you don't know that. So I think it's a very questionable thing to be faffing around with from a supplements perspective. Um, yeah. And and if people are taking probiotics, you should cycle the strains so that you're actually getting a variety of different strains rather than just having one that you could go to that's got, you know, a certain amount of different, you know, three or four strains in it, for example. It does open up the, the conversation and you did mention it there and we did mention at the beginning that we would very likely circle back to talk about supplements um, and that's a sort of good, good lead into it because that is a supplement. It's something extra Absolutely. outside yeah. of your normal yeah. things and your normal diet. So it, it is a supplement, even though it's next to the yogurt in the, <laughs> in the supermarket. Um, when I'm going to, I'm carefully phrasing this. So I'm not a fan of supplements just generally. I, I don't use them. I used to, I used to use protein powder. I used to kind of have a protein powder. I stopped a few years ago now and have noticed no difference whatsoever. I actually feel better for not having them. Um, and maybe, maybe that's some of the other stuff that was in it. Um, I've messed around with um, things like BCAAs, um, tablets, things like that, just because they were on deal. They were, they were, they were on offer. <laughs> so oh, I'll try that. Yeah. That, that, that. They say they're good um, for DOMS and stiffness and things like that. So, tried a bit of that stopped taking all those things and noticed no difference like i said um just by trying to eat a balanced diet and food that maybe contains some of those naturally occurring things anyway yeah so, so supplements. Good. i always say food yeah. first right the, yeah. the supplementary to your diet so food always comes first so if someone comes to me and says Oh, you know, I've got really dry skin. It's like, well, how much fatty fish are you eating in a week? Well, you're having two serves. So can we up it to four serves and see what happens before we go in with a supplement? Mm. Then if we're going to go down the supplement route, if someone says to me, I can't possibly eat four serves of fatty fish or I hate fish or I'm vegan or whatever. It's like, okay, so how can we get this into the into the body in a different way? And often the answer is supplementation. So it's like a last resort if we can't get it through food. And then the question then arises of quality right? So quality of supplements. It's very difficult, again, marketing tactics. It's very difficult to discern for the average person what is a good supplement and what is a probably ineffective supplement. 
Um, and just going on to the fish oil topics is something that props up all the time. They did a study actually in 2018 in Australia where they pulled off the shelf, I think it was 40 supplements that were marketed as fish oil. They just grabbed them off the shelf and they did independent testing. And 70% of them weren't at the potency that they said they were. And 80% of them had gone rancid because of the length of time that they've been stored and also like, um, like their exposure to light. So often they might be in a glass bottle where light could get through and things like that. So it's really interesting that even though I think I'm buying, say, I don't know, um, a really common brand like Swiss or whatever we've got access to in Australia, you go and grab it off the shelf and you think, oh, it's on offer, it's great, I can buy a big, a big volume of it and whatever, but it could actually be rancid. It could not contain the amount that it says is in there. It's not regulated. It's not been third-party tested. You don't really know what the quality of the fish oil is coming. Where are those fish from? Is it from China? Have they been well looked after? That kind of stuff. Um, and how are you then storing it and how long are you keeping it at home? Because if I've got a vat of, say, 300 tablets of fish oil, and by the time I get to the bottom of them, the problem, that oil is probably not going to be that fresh, right? Mm. So supplementation is really poorly understood by people again like food labels are and knowing what's a good brand who to turn to who to trust in the industry what's marketing what's not it's very difficult to understand it's annoying isn't it it's annoying that yeah it, it should be it should be easy it should be straightforward to know what to put put in your body that is good for you it but should be absolutely there's money, there's money involved isn't there? that's true yeah Always, always. It always comes back to that, right? And that that's, again, one of my pain points. And it's something that I repeat over and over and over and over in clinic is like, you know, don't, can you stop taking this, whatever you're taking, whatever it is. People come to me with like lists and lists and lists of stuff, you know, like I'm taking this from my hormones and this from my sleep and this from my stress levels. And it's like, oh, how do you know that any of any of that is doing anything for you? Do you feel better once you've started taking it? And 90% of the time, like, I don't know. I don't really know. I just take it because I've been told to. Or, mm. you know, I just saw it in the supermarket and it was on offer. Uh, it's like, but you need to reverse engineer and say, what are my symptoms? Am I dealing with that through food first? If not, where can I get a good quality supplement that's going to support me? And, and people don't have somewhere to turn for that information, which is why I really want to spend time. I'm, th there's going to be a whole section on the app that I'm doing all about supplementation and what to look for. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, commercially available supplements, and this is something I didn't know before I did my degree, commercially available supplements have stuff in them that are called excipients. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Um, but excipients are essentially... The, the supplements version of gums, fillers, flavors yeah. that we're finding in food. Yeah. yeah. So the, and the there's example, a lot of that in the supplements industry. So, so that would be the example of, say, like a, a paracetamol tablet. That's not all paracetamol. That's just the stuff that's being used to deliver the paracetamol to you. Right. It's the talc that it's pressed into or yeah. whatever's in there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that as fillers, you know, in, in supplements. And then often the stuff that's on the shelf, you're like, okay, cool. I'm buying a pure vitamin B supplement. It's by a brand that I'm familiar with. I always use this brand. I'm sure it's great because everybody buys it and I'll go and grab that. I'm doing it for, say, I'm educated and I know that B vitamins are good for energy, for example. Right? And I go into the supermarket, I grab it because my energy is low. This is going to fix me up for a few weeks, happy days. What they don't realize is what a therapeutic dose is. And quite often, 
the stuff that's in the supermarket has to be below what we would consider a therapeutic dose because it may interact with other things. So if they've got, say somebody's on an antidepressant and something interacts with that, you can't then be able to just walk into a supermarket and grab something that could cause a problem. So everything, generally speaking, unless it's prescribed, is low dose. And what I would consider a therapeutic dose of fish oil is normally three times what is in the the normal amount in a supermarket kind of product that's listed as, say, 300 grams of EPA. And if I wanted to give somebody a good quality fish oil and give them a therapeutic, essentially effective dose for it to have an impact on their health, I would want to be seeing someone take anywhere between one and three grams of EPA. So three times the dose of what's in the standard supermarket brand. So again, even if you've got a good quality one and you know the reasons why you're taking it, it might not be at the dose that you need to take it at for it to have an effect. And that's the problem with the supplements industry. Yeah. So it's very tricky to navigate for people. Mm. Very tricky. It, it's almost well, yeah. You're blindfolded in a maze, aren't you? The odds are stacked against us, guys. It's one of those things that you really have to be driven and motivated to want to understand what you're putting in your body. Otherwise, you really don't stand the chance. It's just it's it's so unfair and it's so tricky. And it comes back to for me, it comes back to this stuff should be taught in school. Like the amount of times I could have done, I could have used a bit of this information for my better health rather than Pythagoras theorem that I'm 90% of the time never going to use. Like I really wish I could have swapped that for understanding the nutrition label and seen where my health outcomes would have been had I not spent, you know, 40 grand on a degree. It just seems so unfair to children and the next generation on, but here we are. Here we are. It just comes back all the time. It comes back to that food first, doesn't it? Food first. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Food first, but then also the better quality food that you can afford, the the best quality food that you can afford. Because as you as we were speaking of, like often the food chain isn't the best either. And you can't always rely on it to provide you with everything you need. So like our soils, for example, are pretty depleted of magnesium now. Um, based on crop rotation and whatnot. So even if you're eating a fairly healthy diet, most people are de- de- like deficient in magnesium and it requires supplementation. Yeah. And I guess also... Um, um, I was going to say something. I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. Oh, you, guys, you guys think something else. <laughs> 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 no, but you're, you're right. Like food, food first is very important. But I think... and. The tricky thing is, it's all right me sat here saying, oh, you know, like go go and get a prescription for a good quality supplement or, or one without excipients or whatever. Um, but then comes the question of, but I need the finances to go and see a nutritionist, right? And good ones are expensive. So we're stuck in a rock between a rock and a hard place of like, oh, well, I'll just Google it, right, instead. Um, because that's going to save me $200, $300. And, and if I just find a good quality brand or I'll just Google reviews and see what people are saying, then I can probably kind of um, veer out of seeing a professional. But you're relying on non, non-professional people to give you advice about your own body. And that's where we get so lost and wrapped up in things and spending lots of money on stuff that we don't need. So there's there's this horrible gap in the industry and it kills me of knowledge, professionals, accessibility, understanding of our own bodies. And it just creates a beautiful, perfect storm for organizations to market to vulnerable people. 
Yeah, it's taking advantage of the, the chaos and the confusion, isn't it? Absolutely. That's what they're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've, we've talked, really what we've talked about is just as humans, um, what, how we should eat and what, what, we, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. What we haven't touched on is probably a little bit more the focus of, of this podcast in terms of health and fitness because that's a whole whole different world as well. Because you're not just talking whole about ball game. Yeah, you're not just talking about maintenance yeah. calories. You're not just talking about your kind of metabolic rate on a day to day basis as a normal human going about normal human tasks. You're talking about different things with a, a particular purpose in mind, be that strength, yeah. be that aesthetics, or be that performance or whatever. And that changes from sport to sport because you need different things for absolutely. Different. So yeah. I thought it would just be interesting to, to talk about that nutrition for performance side of things um, rather than just nutrition because we do need to eat. How, for sure. How, yeah. how do we approach that? How, how, where, do we, where do we start as people who care about health and being fit? Yeah, it's, so, it's tricky, right? So I'll caveat this, the beginning of the conversation with um, what is – optimal for performance isn't what's always optimal for health they're two fairly different things so for example I might have an athlete come to me who is doing you know a triathlon and they need to get in fast digesting carbs in um you know a a race that might be four hours long right and it's not for me to say just have a pause and eat a banana it's not going to work yeah. So it's like I need, we need to get in a fast digesting mix of glucose and fructose in whatever way we can get it to optimize performance so that they can keep going. Does that mean that they're going to be the healthiest person? Probably not. Are they the fastest person? Hopefully. Right. So the two fairly different things. I wouldn't be giving out like exercise gels to someone who's just trying to live a healthy life. Yeah. So performance and health can be two fairly different things. Um from like the average person who's going to the gym who just wants to optimize their kind of um their well-being yes again balance is key so we know even with strength and strength training if you're going really hard at the gym and trying to you know elevate your strength you're doing progressive overload in theory you shouldn't be able to do that six days a week like you should not be able to stress your body that much six days a week Because in theory, if you've gone hard enough, you're probably not going to be able to work those muscles again for at least 48 hours. So you want to, you really want to think about the structure and design of your training and whether you're going hard enough for long enough, are you doing the right amount of reps and reverse engineer from your goals. So am I trying to get faster? Am I trying to get stronger? Am I trying to, um, you know, like what are the goals here that I'm trying to achieve? A lot of the time it's to build muscle, but then people are in caloric deficits, which again, makes no sense. You can't lay down new muscle (laughs) tissue if you're not eating enough food to, you know, carry out basic function. So again, lack of education on that front, but reverse engineering from your goals is really important. So what are you trying to achieve? Is it a specific sport? In which case your dietary requirements will be different based on energy systems used predominantly, like you're using anaerobic, aerobic, um, how do we fuel those particular, you know, um, energy systems most effectively? Um, but as a general rule of thumb, right, what I would say is if you're an athlete or you're lifting fairly heavy and you're doing it to a, a, 
a decent degree. Creatine is a really, really good supplement that is the, it's actually more tested in science than whey protein. And it's got more evidence for it, interestingly. Mm. Um, so creatine, if anyone like wants the science behind it, it's just the creatine phosphate system that basically generates ATP really quickly, so energy, which means that you can get out a couple of extra reps. Right. So in terms of um, from a scientific effectiveness perspective, it's great. It's cheap. It's accessible. Um, you just need to get one with no fillers that's flavorless. Pre-training, post-training, there's not a lot of science to say that there's um, any difference. So you can kind of just do whatever works for you that's going to get it in your bod. Um, so that's a really good thing to go for. Protein, always prefer whole foods, as you were saying, over whey. So if you can get in a good source of protein after training, great. If you don't want to eat chicken or eggs or whatever after training, then a protein supplement is fine. You've just got to find one that you can digest well. So um, protein is an important consideration. The girls that are scared of carbs and the guys that are scared of carbs, uh, it stresses me out so much. It, like we people don't understand that it's actually a really, really big provider of energy and like, and therefore performance. It has a huge impact on performance if you don't have enough carbohydrates as fuel. So um, having a ratio of guys, for guys, four to one of carbs to protein is a really, really good kind of baseline to work off within, within one to two hours of training. So four parts carbs to one part protein. For women depending on what body composition goals are and whatnot, generally three to one down to two to one, depending on who they are and what the body shape is and things. So carbohydrates should be consumed in much more volume than protein. Everyone just spills <laughs> protein and water straight after the gym. Um, bodybuilders who are really um, the extreme versions, right, are actually really interesting to observe because they show us like that people are really trying to optimize to a very like far extent, like hypertrophy muscle gain. They will often have powdered carbs because they understand this science, right? So if you've ever been to a health food store, there's like tubs of maltodextrin and stuff mm. um, because they understand that carbohydrates are an important fuel and they also help shuttle protein to the muscles. So Carbohydrates and proteins around training, really, really important. If you're going to have junky, pro, junky carbs, so like really processed bread or lots of rice or jellies or sugary things, post-training, you've got this beautiful window where your body's actually going to have a really good response to it. Utilize that window. That's why people, I don't know if you've ever heard of carb cycling as a, as a dietary tactic, but where people you know, just have the carbs around training because your body utilizes them and processes them a lot more so that's always a, a kind of a nice approach if people are weird about carbs is just trust that your body needs them after training yes and then beyond that that balance of 80 80 20 you know whole foods mm. the rest of the time and and just eat sensibly like it really is really boring for me to say that but like eat sensibly and it don't drink boring. too much it is <laughs> boring boring is perhaps not the right word and we have used the word in the past but mundane is probably maybe a better word because yeah. kind of training as well is mundane because you're just doing it you're just you're, you're doing doing your stuff and it just needs to be a complicated yeah just, and there's no yeah there's no fanfare you're not getting a medal at the end of it you're just doing it you're getting in doing what you're doing you're getting out and I think that idea does apply to nutrition as well and I do it was interesting you mentioned rice there um because I do like 
I do like rice. That would be my kind of main rice and potatoes would be my main um, carbs. Um, so rice with some chicken in or with some peas with chopped up green meat. That would that would be kind of a, a lunch for me. Uh, Mine's couscous, yeah. rice. You you do like the couscous bowl, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that is quite a boring, boring meal because I don't really it's quite convenient because you can actually cook rice really quickly. I'll have some chicken, which is already pre-prepared, um, maybe cooked a couple of days ago in the fridge, chop that up, mix it in. The hot rice warms the chicken up, maybe some salt and pepper. It's actually relatively bland, but I find it quite reassuringly bland, if that makes sense. So I don't need to add any like hot pepper sauce or anything like that because I actually quite like the the comfort of that well relative blandness I suppose it is it is it is relative isn't it in terms of what what you think you need to yeah have. and I think you, your palate adjusts over time right like if you put so, out yeah. all the really sugary salty stuff that is hyper palatable so that stuff that doesn't send the signals to your brain to say, hey, I'm full, which is generally chocolate crisps, etc. It's normally a combination with fat. So it's always fat, sugar, fat, salt is, is the premium combo that, that the companies will look for. So think chips, yeah. think chocolate, think donuts. It's always that combo of like the fat and something else that's hyper palatable. And notice that there's never any protein. So if I said to you, like, what do you overeat? It's biscuits, it's this, it's whatever mostly speaking it's low protein food and proteins we know is satiating so you've never heard anyone say oh my god i had such a big night last night i binged on 15 steaks like it, it just doesn't happen because it's not hyper palatable right so the foods that you just described yet fairly mundane and bland if you want to think of them like that but mm. once you kind of cut all the crap out of your diet and the real exciting hyper palatable foods and you push them to one side you actually realize that those are the tasty, the, what we might say is mundane is actually the tasty, healthy, yummy stuff. And you get a good palate for it. Now I eat mm. that way. I crave that stuff when I don't have it because I've changed my palate. Totally agree. I completely agree. And yeah. I think, so this week's been a, 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 a strange, not a strange, but there was two, I say strange, but two, two days of the week. So last weekend we, we went away. So we had a, had a nice meal in a hotel. Um, it was like a tasting menu thing, which is food I wouldn't normally eat. It wasn't particularly, there weren't big portions. It was, you know, fancy little, little things. Um, yeah. And then on Tuesday, it was my wife's birthday. So we had, um, we had some family round and, you know, kind of had, had some food, but it's not the normal food that we would eat. And towards the end of this week, I've, I was right off. I just didn't feel right internally. And I, and I yeah. know it's because of a few days before on that combination. Yeah. And then yeah. I feel fine now because I've gone back to, gone back to normal. Back on track. Yeah. But I yeah. think it does take a while to develop those habits. And I think it is, it's psychological as much as anything else as well. Because, yes, I love the feeling of having a nice hot bowl of rice with some chicken in. It's just really nice. Yeah. And I do miss yeah. having that and I really enjoy having that. And that does make me a little bit weird because, and my wife would say, I don't know how you can eat that. It doesn't taste of anything. It's like, well, to me, it does. To me, it's really nice. Yeah. And I know it's yeah. actually doing some good for what I needed to do in order to fuel yeah. me. And Yeah, I don't know. But I, I think, think it's... I think it 
think if we looked at food as functional a lot of the time, it'd solve a lot of people's problems. Like if you looked at the thing that you're about to eat and go, how is this serving me? You'd solve a lot of the problems, right? Because you'd be like, okay, well, it isn't serving me because it's full of sugar and whatever, but it's yummy. So like, I don't mind having it every now and again. Whereas if you look at your food and say, okay, it's chicken and rice, it's protein, it's carbs, it fuels me, it makes me feel good, I digest it well, it's comforting, it's tasty, then it serves me in so many ways. So it's like when you ask, like, what is your food doing for you in that moment? Like, is it nourishing? Is it full of vitamins and minerals? Well, tick yes, rice, tick yes, chicken. Then if you can try and choose those foods the majority of the time, you've probably solved a lot of the questions you've got around food and the the you know, your symptoms and whatnot. But when you fill your diet up with the stuff that like, you're not even thinking about it and you're just consuming it because it tastes good rather than the function of it, right? How is this serving me? Then that's when the problems begin to arise when you're eating a majority of those foods. So I'm going to ask a different question. This is for me. So I train, I get up at five. I have some water and I'll go and do my exercise. So I don't tend to eat unless I feel really hungry, in which case maybe I have a banana or something to eat during the workout, but that's very rare. I come in, I'll probably have a cup of tea because I make a cup of tea for my wife and make her breakfast. I'll probably have my protein shake, which tends to be a, a, a vegan protein powder because the whey powder upsets my tummy and my creatine. Yeah. And then I probably won't have my overnight oats to about half 10 or between half nine and 10 o'clock that morning. I'm now, crying here. Like, I, I I'm crying. Oh, having, this is having, not okay. No, I know. And having listened to what you just said, I'm like, oh crap, I probably need to make some adjustments to what I'm doing here. But I find if I eat my oats early in the morning after I've worked out, I'm really hungry then in the mid-morning, whereas actually I can go until half nine, ten with my oats and I'm fine. But clearly there's probably something better to optimise for those early morning rises that tend to exercise like that. Yeah. So what I would say is about the hungry oats thing, number one, go for whole oats as opposed to the quick ones. Because the if you think... Yeah, like it obviously take longer to digest. Um, pair it with protein. So like you're not just doing carbs on its own. If you're going to mix in your protein powder or whatever, you can do that. But the timing of food is actually surprisingly important. So what I would say to you is if you can track, so you don't need to eat a volume of food before training. No one's going to feel good smashing a big bowl of oats and then going to the gym within half an hour. It's just not yeah. going to serve you well. You're going to feel yucky. Depends on the type of training you're doing, right? But certainly if you're doing any kind of cardio or interval weight training or anything like that where your heart rate's up, you're going to feel gross. So one of the simple things, I, and I get people to do this quite regularly, is um, you can either have like, you want fast digesting carbohydrates pre-training, right? So particularly for guys, um, you can do things like honey on rice cake. It's not a big volume of food, but it's plenty yeah. of glucose and it's going to digest quickly. So you're not going to feel super full. You can just literally squeeze it on, off you go, happy days, you've got your carbohydrates. And then you give yourself a bit more of a window to refuel with glycogen after training. Another thing you can do is just medjool dates. So really simple, just pop them in your mouth or take them to the gym with you. You can do it intra-workout if you want to do it that way. So I'm I, I train in my garage, right, so I'm literally not going anywhere. So I'm up, I'm downstairs, I feed the cat, and I go out. 
Yeah. So when you literally when you wake up, do you do coffee when you wake up? No, I don't have any coffee until later. Just water. Just water. So do an experiment for me for the next week where you have like three dates or two rice cakes with honey on. Okay. Just before you go down to your gym and tell me how you go. Because I honestly I like I used to do exactly what you did. And I'm um, and I've Right. And your body and your body's like, well, I'm fine, right? I don't know why I would need to eat because I feel like I'm performing well. I feel light, I feel energized, and I smash out a good workout. It really depends on the what kind of training you're doing, as I was mentioning. So if you're doing cardio, you, I would probably avoid it. But you know what? Just skip it. If you feel fine, don't worry about it. If you're not if you're not doing weights. endurance, it's fine. Yeah. Right. If you're doing heavy weights though, interestingly, like you're not throwing yourself around. Yes, your heart rate might be up, but certainly myself and my partner who's a strength and conditioning coach who you guys know um have been eating and then training later in the day we've got the luxury of being able to do that because we both have flexible work um but the amount of like I don't know how to say this but like the different kind of energy that you've got when you do strength training once you've eaten you don't necessarily feel light and agile but you definitely feel like you can pump out a few more reps which is really interesting or you can lift a bit heavier I would definitely say gravity is greater first thing in the morning if I if I train so take, take deadlift okay so I was trying to hit 190 kilograms for a set of two a couple of weeks ago before six o'clock and it wasn't happening came home in the afternoon oh look it popped up and it's like well is that because my cns is awake well maybe it's because i haven't had anything to eat maybe it's a bit of both yeah absolutely but if you think what you're trying you're trying to get your body to produce energy quickly for those fast lifts yeah so if you're trying to get your body to produce atp but you have it it's like getting into an empty car with no petrol in it i mean like right let's go guys we've got all the you, you're not going to be able to do the fast heavy lifts first thing in the morning when you've just woken up you haven't put any fuel in the tank and then you're putting a huge stress on your body when your cortisol's rising and it's like it's just this again perfect storm for lack of performance so if i was saying to someone you want to optimize your performance fast digesting carbs before training and then refuel with protein and carbs to that ratio that i mentioned like four to one as a guy post training in that two hour window you're sweet if you if you have the opportunity to eat and you train later in the day, you don't necessarily need to refuel with carbs and protein straight after training because the chances are if you've had a decent meal two, three hours before, you've got plenty of amino acids floating around. So you've got a good supply. You've probably got a good supply of glycogen. So you don't necessarily need to do that quick refuel. So- but a lot of people do the faster training because they feel good, right? Or they don't have time and then they worry about the refuel afterwards. So just to give you a bit of like the biology behind why you need to, why you need to refuel. So when you wake up, um, you might remember this Paul from your, um, from your training, but when you wake up, the reason we wake up is from cortisol. So cortisol and melatonin work in opposition. Cortisol wakes us up. We have the cortisol awakening response. If you don't set your alarm, that's what wakes you up. It just is the, the tipping point between melatonin and cortisol kind of taking over. So we wake up and then it continues to rise. And at which point when most of us are sculling a coffee or going to training or whatever, both of those things are raising cortisol faster. What nullifies cortisol or what dampens the cortisol response is feeding. 
So if you can bring cortisol or you can kind of stunt the, the very fast elevation, we know that cortisol has an impact on our ability to lose weight and our stress response and things, yeah? So we don't want too much cortisol. We want the right amount. So if we eat, we almost blunt the elevated cortisol response that comes from training um, and from having coffee on an empty stomach, right? So it is, it is actually really important from a hormonal perspective as well to and, and a performance perspective to control that elevation in cortisol in the morning, which I think a lot of people kind of miss the mark on with fasted training and, um, and intermittent fasting. What would you... Would you all would you do it faster if you were doing like a Metcon, like a say like a CrossFit open workout as well? Would you would you would you do the same thing? So for me, I would because I so I, again I chop and change. So if I'm doing a strength based workout, right, and I know that I'm going to be like aiming for a one rep max on my deads. I'm going to eat before and I'm going to give myself half an hour or like at least do something really really fast, like a sugary whatever I can get in, and then go and do the training. Um, if I'm doing cardio based stuff, so, or like, yeah, like a Metcon or if I'm doing CrossFit and like the wads insane, then the chances of me eating and feeling good are pretty minimal. Right. So I would probably, for me, I would go fasted. I probably wouldn't smash a coffee beforehand, which is what everybody's really inclined to do or do a pre-workout. I would skip that. But then I would also make sure that I refuel very quickly afterwards because you're trying to get your glycogen back up. Remember that if you think about what you're doing in, in CrossFit um, and you're getting your heart rate up, the, the need to replenish really quickly your ATP and stuff isn't as dependent on if you're trying to do like a one rep max where you mm. need every ounce of energy in your body to try and lift that stuff off the floor. So it, it, I do it dependent on the workout. If I'm going to be jumping around, I'm not going to feel good with stuff in my stomach. And I know if I, I just need to be more savvy about the refuel. So for women, we have a smaller window, which is rubbish, of 30 minutes to one hour if you train fasted, whereas guys get about two hours. The sooner you can refuel, the better, basically. Just think of it like that. Um if it means that you need to do oats in a shake with some protein and just get it in the bod as soon as you can, that's always a good option. Um, or like take something with you. You can just throw some rice cakes in your bag or whatever that looks like. But optimizing like fuel around training is one way to really, really improve your lifts, improve your times. Um, it's just you've got to listen to your own body. You know, if you don't feel good doing cardio on a full stomach, don't do it. If you feel fine on it, why wouldn't you put fuel in the tank before you do a heavy session? Like it, it, it makes complete sense from an energy perspective. Yeah. So I'm now going to have dates or some rice crackers with honey first thing before I go in the garage. And then when I come back in, I'll have my, my protein, and my oats and my fruit and go for in there. Yes. So good. Yeah, absolutely. And um, uh, one thing that I will say as well is if I've got an athlete coming to me, we we try to moderate the amount of fat, right? So one thing that a lot of people do is like, oh, I'm going to have a real hearty breakfast after a huge workout, right? And it's eggs, it's bacon, it's peanut yeah. butter in a shake, it's this, that and the other. And it's fairly fat predominant, but we know that fat is really satiating and it actually, it, it's amazing for blood sugar levels, right? Because it actually is a very slow digesting macronutrient. But what that means though, is that you're sl also slowing down the absorption of carbs and protein. 
And that's when you need the fast refuel of carbs and protein, right? So the glycogen and the amino acids to refuel the bod from what you've just depleted. So realistically, carbohydrates, and you notice in that ratio, I only said carbs and protein. I didn't mention fats. So fats... If you've got a bit of them in in your food post training, it's fat. It's not you know it's not the end of the world. But if you're having a fat predominant meal after training, it's going to impede the performance of the food and the replenishment as quickly as possible, which is what we're trying to achieve. So, like for the everyday athlete, it's not a huge deal, and I won't be saying like avoid eggs. But it is a consideration if you're really trying to optimize your refuel, if you're trying to, if, you, if your goal is hypertrophy or body recomp, then it's something that you can play around with and say, you know what, I'll pause my fats around brekkie, I'll just have a small amount, and then I'll incorporate them more later in the day. And I might drop off the carbohydrates a little bit because I'm having lots around training, for example. So you've got to listen to your body's feedback, though. Like some people feel great on that and some people don't. Somebody who's keto would kill me for saying that, right? Whole whole other conversation. Right. <laughs> you, meant, you, meant, you mentioned the word. <laughs> Sorry, I know. Before we even jump towards keto, um, you said about having a coffee first thing. There's a lot of people say, oh, don't have coffee first thing. Give it at least an hour, an hour and a half before you have caffeine because of that cortisol rising up and stressing the body. Yeah, absolutely. Remember, though, that food... Um, can blunt the cortisol response. So if you're having your coffee, again, have something to eat with it. And even if you're not training, right, even if it's you've just woken up and you want to have a coffee and you're not training, if you can eat a little something, something with your, with your coffee, you're going to really blunt that insane response of cortisol flying off the handle. So if that means that you, you want to wait an hour after waking, because you don't want to eat straight away when you've got up, then do that. But don't, Generally speaking, if you're really trying to help cortisol, you know you're a stressed person um, and maybe you're not sleeping very well or whatever, looking at these like one percenters of can I eat with my coffee instead of just having it on an empty stomach might make a bit of a difference. Might also help your um, your acid levels in your tummy if you don't have the coffee on an empty stomach. <laughs> yeah yeah i always use um roasted dandelion it sounds really hippie and gross but it's actually really delicious roasted dandelion tea it it looks like a normal english breakfast when it comes out it's like a dark brown you can put stevia in it and milk and drink it like coffee but it's roasted and it's a root so it actually tastes Mm. like coffee but it's completely caffeine free so if you want something when you wake up and it's just the ritual of having something warm and yummy with a bit of milk in then dandelion tea is a really beautiful thing and it actually helps detoxify the liver which is beautiful so if you are having a lot of caffeine or alcohol or whatever it's just that bit of extra support to get toxins out of the body as well so that's always a nice thing to wake up to that i use that's a real favorite of mine no, no, I didn't believe it, can you? can't believe it, but that's what I tend to go for. I, probably the only milky tea I have during the day is the first thing in the morning. Otherwise, um, it tends to be more herbal stuff along with black coffee. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other thing, right? People don't necessarily know how much caffeine they're consuming. Like they might have an energy drink and they might have a pre-workout and then they might have a coffee at work and then they might have another pick-me-up mid, mid-afternoon. And then they come to me and they're like, I'm super stressed. Exactly. But, but what do you think is happening to all that caffeine right like, yeah. 
it's um and it's hidden in so many things like coke zero people are like oh there's no calories in it so i'm smashing the coke zeros all day it's like there's so much caffeine in those things you really need to account for it and then people are like oh but i have a green tea but also green tea has caffeine in you know so it's like you've got you've got to look at the whole picture and say where are the all the sources that i'm getting it from if it's a coffee shop coffee it's likely to have a lot more caffeine in than one that you're brewing at home um and like can we switch a few times to decaf you know so that you can actually get the performance enhancing benefits of coffee rather than adapting to it because people have it every single day thinking it's helping them in the gym but we become so adapted to it that the the ergogenic benefits really dissipate so cycling coffee or swapping it out for decaf every now and again is a really good choice too i suppose it's very similar to the point you made about the um the highest quality meat that you can that you can get and can afford um i have one really nice coffee that i've made myself from from beans and a nice kind of <clears throat> locally roasted coffee which is a lot more than an instant coffee or even the supermarket bags of coffee but i enjoy that one espresso that i have in my in my little cup um here yeah I enjoy that and that's all I need. I don't need any more because I've had the taste of a really nice coffee. And it's it's for the taste rather than the caffeine. And that's the only time yeah. I'll 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 have coffee um in the day. Just because it's yeah. Yeah. I've been called out on social media this week for having a Starbucks to the point that um my See friend that. has my friend has sent me a French press and some divine coffee pouches. Because he was so upset with me. Oh, hey, we're the worst in, in Australia. <laughs> if you guys have ever been, like, the coffee culture is insane here. Like, it's so snobby that you'll walk past a coffee shop that have got, like, freshly roasted coffee. And if you, like, everybody knows the roaster that they like. So if they don't serve from the same, the right roastery, they'll be like, oh, no, I don't go there because they don't serve all press or they don't serve Equinox or whatever bean it is that they used to. Like, it's so the snobbery here for coffee is insane. And it's like such a ritual for everyone. It's wild. Like, I've never you, seen anything like it. Do you know Forsyth's Coffee in Sydney? No, I don't. They've got a few, they've got a few little sort of cafes in and around Sydney. I don't know exactly where, but talking about my coffee. So Alex Forsyth, who used to work there, it's his family business, who now lives um, in the UK. Um, he's got a coffee roastery and I buy ah. and drink his coffee. So I understand the Australian coffee thing. and Right, the yeah. snobbery of it. It's and I'm, great. I'm part of it. I'm part of it because... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I even even when I've been to London since I've been living in Australia and I've gone back home and like you think London, if I'm going to get a good coffee anyway, it's probably not going to be in Yorkshire, but surely London have got good options, right? And I'll go and I'll be like, wow, it's actually not that great. It's weird. Um, I've just become such a snob. Like, oh, it's either burnt or it's like the milk's not good or whatever. But yeah, it's um, it's such an institution over here. But to the point where people will have three, four, five a day, which is pretty out of hand. That's you know, lot. and obviously not good for cortisol. No, not at all. We all like our own things, don't we? We all have our rituals. And like people will say to me, oh, that's the, the one treat that I have. You know, like that's the one thing in my diet that I allow in abundance as a treat. And like, it's not like I'm eating donuts every day and it's fine and whatever. And it's like, again, everything in moderation. It is fine. 
fine. It does have benefits. It's great if you've got brain fog or you just need a bit of a boost and it is nergogenic in training. Like it's great for that. Um, it's actually a really good book. It's called uh, Coffee and Performance, I think, um, that it, it comes highly recommended for people who are looking at like optimizing the intake of it for sport. Um, but like, if you're just like the average person, you're sculling five coffees a day. Again, it's, like, it's not going to do you any favors. The half-life of coffee is about 12 hours. So it's, it's a long time to have caffeine circulating in your system. And if you're doing a lot throughout the day, even if you stop at two o'clock and you've had loads in the morning, you've still got a lot circulating in your system by the time you go to bed. And then people come to me and say, oh, well, I wake up and I'm not feeling refreshed because like, you've not had deep sleep because you did five coffees the day before mm. yeah. <laughs> so um it's it's fascinating again not making that connection right not really understanding what our body's trying to tell us and like taking it back to what did i take in the day before and why could that be there's a massive disconnect between what goes in and how the body performs uh, and that's not even from Usually. a perf- performance level that's just from a, the average person walking down the street level yeah so yeah. on the on the um little book recommendation there um i recently very recently just finished a book called why we eat too much um by dr andrew jenkinson um which like like you mentioned earlier sally about all the things that you wish you learned at school to help you that you learn later in life i thought it was a fantastic book um yeah it, it was brilliant just laid things out in a way that is understandable and actually for the first time coming back to the mention of keto before um actually explained what that is from a you know kind of biological sense and what ketones actually do and how they impact um the body and how it does certain functions which i haven't actually been able to get the information from the internet and the world um as, it, as it's pushed and it was a really good way of explaining things and i thought it, was, it, it laid laid things like that out really well not necessarily to dispel any myths but to actually just give the information in a way which yeah go back to the science right yeah of, it wasn't pushing like, an agenda how, do, how does my body work exactly yeah. how does my yeah. body work what happens when i eat this what is the body's response how does yeah. it utilize fat as fuel what does it mean if i only eat fats so it's yeah. It, we, it's the, this is the problem with the industry that I'm in and I find that I'm really trying not to contribute to the noise is that um, there's so many mythical kind of things that because we're not understanding the basic biological mechanisms right of if I eat protein why can't why don't I binge on protein for example but I binge on sugary foods and it's like, what's going on from a mechanistic perspective when I consume those things yeah. from a biological perspective, from an addiction perspective, from a dopamine perspective, like sugar and dopamine, like wild connection. But we don't we don't have that knowledge. And so it's on us to seek that knowledge. So books, recommendations like the like the one you just mentioned, why we um too much really really beautiful way of supporting your knowledge and understanding and if you can pass a bit of that on to a friend or family member or whatever just do it because the lack of information out there that's solid by doctors and people who are educated is just it's just this huge gap that is so painful and why we see so much obesity and um misunderstanding around diet and why the diet industry is so bloody prevalent right like selling us shakes and you know protein bars and crap 
um, because we think it's the answer, because we don't have the answers ourselves, because we don't trust the body, we don't listen to its feedback, we don't know what we're putting in our bodies or what it means. Um, another really beautiful book recommendation that's slightly different from a food perspective, I don't know if you guys have read Atomic Habits, it's yep. such a popular book now, yep. but I always say to people, if you're struggling with, you know, we're speaking about the knowledge action gap, like people know they need to eat more veggies, but they just don't. Um if you can, if you read that book for the second time, third time, or whatever, and you look at it from the perspective of food, and you say, okay, so these are the habits that I want to ingrain in my life because I want to be a healthier human. I am a healthy eater. I'm not somebody who just eats broccoli. It's like taking on the identity of someone who's healthy. Yeah. That can it can be a really helpful thing to go back and backtrack to some of the key points in that book of um, how to integrate healthier habits so that you can kind of we speak about habit stacking and sliding healthy things in. Like you were saying, Paul, you wake up and you just spill water first thing in the morning. That's a learned habit that serves you in a really good way. Yeah. As opposed to my mom who gets up and goes out for a cigarette, right? <laughs> it's like, what's going to do? What's going to serve me in the best way? Right. So the trigger is the waking up potentially for you. And then the action is drinking the water. So I always say to people, if you're really struggling, you've got the knowledge, but you're struggling to implement it. That's a really useful book. Some of the tips and tricks in there for behavior change are really beautiful. Um, and you can look at it from the perspective of food. But then also having that knowledge of food, like you mentioned, that um, that book from Dr. Andrew Jenkins. Great. Another really good resource I say for people to listen to if you're into podcasts is um Huberman Lab which is a really beautiful podcast if you haven't come across that he's a neuroscientist in America called Andrew Huberman and he basically um dives into the mechanistic um kind of result of eating life environment sleep all that kind of stuff how it works in the body from a physical biomechanical perspective mm. so you actually understand your body a bit more which i love so and he breaks it down with really beautiful simple science as well so that's always a good one to listen to when you're in the car or whatever but sadly to kind of wrap up that that topic self-education is key and finding the right sources to get your education from is what people struggle with so going to professionals, reading books, um, listening to your own body, which is really the scientist of, of you, paying attention to it, understanding your symptoms, understanding what happens when you eat certain foods. All that stuff is imperative to drive health and performance forward. Yeah, and I think that's probably a really perfect summary of pretty much everything we've talked about, going back and circling back to where we started, which, which was around... <laughs> a bit of self-awareness and taking a bit of responsibility for what you do and how you live your life. Yeah. As much as we possibly can in the environment yeah. we live in, right? True. Like good caveat. With, yeah. with the, yeah. the tools and the abilities and the finances and the resources that we've got, just do your best. Yeah, I agree. I kind of get the feeling we're kind of nicely wrapped up our conversation. Unless Sean, you've got anything else you want to I think the only the only thing that we had down was around snacks. Um, yeah, because this is probably the, the thing. I, I this is yeah. a personal thing again. It's the thing I struggle with. So my snack, I try to take out processed sugar things that are neatly packaged for snacks. So my snacks now tend to be fruit, a boiled egg that that I can unwrap during the day. Um, and either rice or corn cakes just because they are 
pretty low calorifically, but they give the sensation that you've eaten something and they're reasonable fillers. So I can eat four corn cakes and it's like 104 calories. Yeah. So what I would say with that is, again, this is so boring of me to say, and I'm so sorry, but just going back to the science, five serves of protein a day is optimal comparative to 10 serves, comparative to three serves, all things being equal in the volume of protein that you eat. So say, for example, Mm -hmm. as a guy, you're eating two grams of protein per kilo of body weight, right? As a woman, I'm 55 kilos, so I should be eating, say, 110 grams of protein throughout the day. That should be spread for optimal muscle gain and performance and whatnot across five serves. So that generally looks like, for most people, three mains, two snacks. So when I think about snacking, if I'm thinking, well, I need about 15 grams of protein, one egg's not going to cut it, right? Think about guys, you're going to be eating a lot more protein than me. So sorry, sorry to like pull you up on that. But an an egg, yeah, right. Always eat more. An egg has about six to seven grams, depending on whether you've got like a medium or a large or extra large um, grams of protein, right? So if I'm saying, well, if I split my protein feed up across five serves and I'm only getting like five to six grams in a snack, it probably means that I'm going to have to push more protein to those other meals which then means that I'm probably not getting the right balance of carbs and fats because I'm having to have, you know, like one and a half pieces of chicken breast instead of one, which I can comfortably eat. And then I can't eat as much veggies or whatever because I'm displacing with volume of food. So working out, you know, how many feeds you want in a day, ideally five serves of protein, and then thinking about like, you know, accessibility, portability, all that stuff. So like people who turn to me and say, oh, well, I'm just, I'm just having, you know, a handful of nuts. Yes, there's a bit of protein in it, predominantly fat, a bit of fiber. But then at lunchtime, they might be having like a chicken salad. And then again, in the afternoon, they might have some rice cakes, no protein. And then at dinner, they might have like a little bit of steak and veggies and whatever. Like, oh, I'm eating healthy, but I don't have, you know, energy or my hair's falling out or whatever. Chances are they're probably only having about 70% of the ideal protein serves. So snacks need to be fairly protein heavy to make sure you're getting enough in that five serves. Um, so it looks like protein shakes, like your vegan protein shake, just because it's portable. Um, it looks like making home snacks that are high protein so if you want to do like beef jerky that you can purchase most places but if you want to make your own that's got less flavors and stuff in you can do that eggs are a great option just make sure you're making the right dough you, you know you're having three to three or so to make sure you're getting enough um but i would encourage people to work out what protein they should be getting and even just for two or three days you might use my fitness pal and track how much they're actually getting in a normal day and see if there's a see if there's a kind of gap there which often there is so um for guys generally speaking two to 2.2 grams of protein per kilo of body weight is where you should be aiming for across five serves so build your snacks around that would you say that is for people who are looking to kind of who work out or is that just a general rule for the mass population (laughs) 
Yeah, so, well, it's interesting. There's a bit of a debate about protein intake at the moment um, in terms of what's optimal. I think in Australia, they're actually redefining the RDA of protein. It used to be 0.8 grams per kilo of body weight, right? Mm. But what that actually is, which is what people are aiming for, frustratingly, but what that actually is, is the minimum amount required to not be deficient. So it's not optimal. It's baseline. You're scraping through and you're going to be all right if you eat this amount. But it's not like you're going to be able to grow muscle or you're going to feel good or you're going to feel energized. It's like you're going to get by and you won't have necessarily symptoms off the back of it. So it's not a great indicator. So 0.8, if anybody's ever read that on the internet or whatever, like how much protein should I be having? And that's the absolute minimum dose per kilo of body weight a day. If we're talking strength training, if we're talking... um, you know, like somebody who's on the feet all day, somebody who fidgets a lot, someone who expels a lot of energy, et cetera, then we really need to be looking way up into the two, 2.2 kind of area. Um, it, mm-hmm. Girls that come to me, certainly we start on about 1.8, so slightly less than females, 1.8 grams per kilo of body weight. Um, but obviously because it's per kilo of body weight, it's, it's kind of dose dependent based on your body. So it's... Um, it'll work itself out for how much you need. So that's where I would put most people. If you're really well trained, if you've been training for a really long time, you might actually need less protein than somebody who's untrained, which feels kind of counterintuitive. You think, well, I'm lifting heavy, so I need more. But it's actually the way that your body has learned to utilize protein. So when you look at the studies, you can actually have a bit less protein. So again, back into that just sub two um sub two grams per kilo of body weight if you've been say training for 10 years beyond and beyond progressive overload lots of muscle etc then you don't need as much for the goals that you're trying to achieve so in summary snack yes but make sure it's protein yeah and and I a really good way of looking at it rather than snacks is five meals. Mm. So rather rather than because that takes the tendency away from reaching for small, nibbly, processed crap to ha- like an actual meal of well, proteins, fats, and carbs, whole foods. Yeah. yeah. And then if you want something nibbly and crap and chocolatey or whatever, do a couple of pieces of dark chocolate after dinner or save a little bit for dessert. But ra- rather than doing like a morning and an afternoon of like something nibbly and not very filling or satiating or whatever, think of five meals a day and, and spread your calories or your intake across the day. So you don't have to do a really small snack you can do a a mini meal, you know, or a meal and just spread your calories out over the day evenly. You might do, you know, five, 300 calorie serves, for example. Um, So again, whatever works for you, if you're at work, it might be not convenient to do that, but just make sure you're getting enough protein in if you are doing snacks, because it's going to help with body composition and hypertrophy. If anybody comes to me and says, I'm not trying to put on muscle or I'm not trying to recomp or lose body fat, I'd be amazed. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It, it just never happens. It's everybody's. It's everybody's goal to put either put on more muscle or lose body fat. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, um, there's going to be as as ever in these conversations. There's going to be a lot to process um, in terms of <laughs> what what we've discussed, and particularly a lot of the uh, 
the education that you provide in terms of what we should be doing rather than what we have been doing. I think that's yeah. something and definitely... But, um, no, carry on. What? Well, sorry, I was going to say, what I will say is, because I, I do hate the fact that um, this kind of knowledge or this education is so difficult to come by, it's not science-backed, you pay attention to the influences on the gram and it's like, you just, you, everything's bad for you and whatever. It's pretty stressful in itself trying to navigate that. So I always make my, um, like, direct messages an open platform I literally will make it my job to get back to everybody. So if anybody wants to ask me a question about a supplement, I obviously can't give specific dietary advice of like, yes, you should take this because I don't know what else you're taking, right? And it could be contraindicated. But if someone wants to come to me and says, is creatine good or bad? Should I take it? What do you reckon I do strength training three times a week? I can advise on that. And I will always keep my books open for just like generic questions. I often do Q&As throughout the week as well about nutrition and supplements. So if anybody actually, like, if I can direct you in any way or at least use the degree that I've got and make it, you know, make this a bit less complicated for people, I'm 100% here for that. That's That was my pain point And that's what I want to change in the industry is like making stuff the knowledge that I've got on available, it just, it pains me. So I'm always here to ask any further questions that have cropped up from this podcast, or if anybody's just got a burning question about snacks or, you know, how much you should be eating or whatever, um, reach out. Like, don't feel like you can't. So on social media, um, at the Fit Foodie blog, same for the website. um, And yeah just normally dms or whatever will work on there and um just ask away feel free i'm an open book thank you so much amazing thank you so much for having me guys it's been a pleasure